We really are blessed to be able to stand and sing songs together, to worship our Lord together. We're blessed to be at a fellowship with one another, and we are blessed to have this opportunity to sit and read and study, hear God's Word read and preached, and that's what we're going to turn to now. Uh, we're in Genesis chapter 1 again. We're continuing in our series on uh, doctrines that we hold as a church. We're, uh, I'll say this, I've said it every week. Uh, we're not seeking to give you a seminary education in this. In fact, many of the things you'll hear today are probably things you've heard before. That's okay. My hope is that we strengthen our understanding and maybe are able to see things from a slightly different perspective. But the intent is not to, to come up with a bunch of new stuff or go super deep. We're seeking essentials. We're seeking those things that bind us together as a local church, things that we agree on together, that we all believe, uh, that, that bring unity among the body. Uh, and not just us, but these are historical Christian positions. These are, these are positions that have been held uh, by the church, uh, God's people. So we're uniting not just as a local body, but as, a, uh, as God's people. So Genesis chapter 1, we're looking again at creation, this time with a specific focus on uh, his creation of mankind. In the beginning, God created everything. That's how the Bible starts, right? Like, that's the first line he creates. In the beginning, God creates. His creative work's a bit bit different than ours. We can assemble things, we can organize things in such a way that it is attractive, maybe even awe-inspiring, and and, uh, we're able to appreciate uh, things like Art. Maybe you don't appreciate every piece of art you see. Uh, maybe you think, well, how in the world is that art? But somebody can look at it and see, oh, that's, that's appreci- I, I appreciate that. Technology, things like that. We can assemble things, but we can't create. God created out of nothing. He called the light that we see by, he called it into existence. The air that we breathe, he spoke and it was. He, he, the, the sky in which the sun, the moon, and the stars hang in, he said, he said, let it exist, and it exists. That's just the way it was. He created the space in which everything exists. He created the tick-tock of the clock by which everything is governed in our, uh, in our creation. And he created all the things that would then fill that space and time. We believe God created everything from nothing, and everything exists for his glory. That was the point that we studied last week. That was the perspective that we built out. And I showed you last week that there was a process or a pattern um, that he followed. We're not, we're not seeking to work through all the secondary doctrines of whether these are six real days or six spans of time or, or whether they're just frameworks in, in, in um, the text. It's not the idea. We want to see that God created all of these things, uh, and, 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 and then there's a pattern by which they flow. On day one, he created the light. He said, let there be light. <laughs> and the light had no choice but to be. He separates that from the darkness. That's the, and then he says, here's the end of the first day. He calls the day, the light day, the dark night. He says, this is the end of the first day. Uh, and, and then moves on. But on day three, in this pattern, on day three, I'm sorry, day four, get my numbers right. On day four, he creates the sun, the moon, and the stars that would mark seasons, but that they would also inhabit the light, like they were the, the bodies by which the light was going to shine. On day two, he separates the sky from the waters, and he separates waters above and from waters below, and he creates this expanse. Some people think it's the sky. Some people think it's the heavens. You, you can fall out where, the, where, where you want there, but he creates the sky and the waters that would later be called seas. He separates them out from one another. And on day five... He fills those, fills, not feels, he fills those with birds and fish, respectively. So the birds go in the air, fish go in the waters, that's the way he created it. On day three, he calls out the land. He separates the waters uh, with dry ground, he brings dry ground up from the waters, and he puts vegetation all over the land. And then on day six, he creates animals to fill it. But he didn't stop at just making animals that would walk the face of the earth, that would eat the vegetation. He went a step further. And in fact, when you look at the creation record in Genesis 1, you can see that he he paid particular attention to his final act of creation, mankind. In fact, he 
we can see that he paid particular attention to it because it doesn't stop at what it tells us in chapter 1, but it zooms in and shows us a, a closer view in chapter 2. So we're going to read several verses from both of those chapters, and then we're going to seek to understand what they're saying. So, so let's read Genesis chapter 1. We'll pick it up in verse 26. We'll read through verse 29. It says this. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth, of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And so we see God create man. And we see God bless man and then give them purpose. And we see God then provide for man in this abundant way that you can have every tree. Uh, we know that there's going to be a limit on that in the next chapter. But that's, the, that's the, where it starts. In chapter 2, we go from this 50,000 foot view down to a more specific perspective where we get to see the details of how that worked out in the day. Chapter 2, verse 7 reads this way. Uh, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And so God had called the dust, the, the stuff that he made us out of, he had called it into existence out of nothing, and then he forms it. I don't know exactly, I, don't, I picture hands, you know, reaching down and forming. I, I don't know exactly what, what picture we should have in our head there, except that we can see he's taking the dust, he's forming it into our shape and form, and then in, in, a, in a way he bends over and breathes life, and we become a living being. And something special is happening. But it didn't finish there. We're going to skip down to verse 18, and we'll see what happens next. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. He's just shown him all the animals, all the creatures that he's created, all the, all the land animals have just walked in front of Adam, and Adam has given them names, and there's no one like Adam in all of creation, no one of his likeness, if you will. And God says, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever man called every living creature, what was, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Hey, just for grins and giggles and for the sake of the Bible being here, let's just go ahead and finish out this chapter. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So on the sixth day of creation, God did something Even more spectacular, maybe, if we could say it that way, than what he had done in the rest of the days of creation or what he had done at any other point in the creation record to that point. He creates light. That's pretty amazing. There was no light. There was no space for light to shine into. There was nothing in existence except for him. And he makes light shine and he separates it out. And then three days later, he puts a sun and moon and stars in the sky so that the light could shine from them. It's pretty amazing that every living being is sourced from God's creative efforts. But there is a special emphasis placed on this man and woman. Let's make man in our image. He made man in his image and in his likeness. Male and female, he created them. We believe, we believe God created mankind in his his own image. And even in our sinful state, it is God's image that distinguishes us from the rest of creation. That's long, I know. I'll read it again. 
should be on the screen behind me. We believe God created mankind in his own image. This is an essential doctrine. And even in our sinful state, it is God's image that distinguishes us from the rest of his creation. I would suggest there's people that have talked about the fact that we've lost God's image in some way. I don't think that that's a stance we should be taking as a church. And so while maybe not every Christian has held that view, I would discourage you against it, that even in our sinful state, we still bear God's image. And you'll see why and how that's important as we work through this. So we didn't evolve from monkeys, right? We didn't come from some other animal for that matter. God formed us from the dust of the ground. He breathed life into us. He formed the woman from, a rib, from, from the rib out of the man's side. He made her live. He created male and female in his image. He didn't create us in the same way that he created all the rest of the creatures. We bear his image. And while we aren't what we once were, let's admit it we're not what Adam and Eve were in the moment of their creation. We're not living in a garden paradise that fellowships with God and walks with God in the cool of the night or the cool of the day. We're not what we once were. The image of God remains. And it brings with it intrinsic value and dignity. Now much of the world we live in has lost sight of this. Throw it away. They'd reject it at best. We live in a world where people are mistreated because of the color of their skin. There's actually movements that, uh, because, not, not just racial issues, right? Certainly, this is a horrific thing that we do to one another. But it's not just racial or ethnicity that's a problem. There's movements that would suggest that we should abort babies because they are expected to have birth defects. And so there's a lot of parents who, because they find out they are going to have a child that maybe is Down syndrome, they would seek to end that child's life. Now, if that's someone in this room, I'm not seeking to condemn you. I'm just going to suggest that there's a better way. There's value and dignity. And it, it, it doesn't just stop at aborting babies because they don't measure up to the level of humanness that we would expect them to. I mean, we're, we're killing a hundred, hundreds of thousands of babies every year by aborting them. And granted, abortion, abortion is decreasing in numbers. In 2017, this one statistic I found, in 2017, there were only 862,320 abortions only. But you compare that to 2011 when there were over uh, 1 million. And before that, it was even higher. It, it, it has been decreasing for some time. That, that's great news. But that even one is allowed legally demonstrates that we have a value on something that's greater than God's image in humanity. But the thing that kept, the, the story that kept ringing in, my, just bouncing around in my head, I couldn't, couldn't quit thinking about it as I thought about this and how we often deny or reject the image of God and mankind or God, or I'm sorry, mankind being in the image of God. A couple of years ago, it was three years ago, I think, I, maybe you, you remember the story of the little boy who fell into the gorilla's pit, and they shot the gorilla. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should be excited about shooting and killing an animal just for the sake of shooting and killing an animal. That's not what I'm after. I think it was, I think it was a, a, a responsible and and uh, intentional effort. I think as, as you hear the zookeepers talk afterwards, they, were, they wrestled with what do we do? Is there another way other than to just kill this gorilla? But the decision's made. They shoot and kill the gorilla. The gorilla dies, and afterwards there's outrage because the value of that gorilla was greater than that of the little boy. In fact, and, and part of this might be to protect the family. Who knows? I don't know. Maybe you could find it. I don't know that the boy's name was ever mentioned, but there's memes and, and groups that have gone out in the defense of Harambe, the, the gorilla. Like, we know the gorilla's name, but this family caught such flack, and it's just in, it just says something. 
somewhere along the way, this thing, things have gotten all out of whack. So, something's off. We've lost sight of an essential truth, something that separates us, something that designates us, something that brings intrinsic value and dignity, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, not because we've done something that's better than someone else, but simply because every one of us, every person that has ever been conceived from the moment of that conception has been an image bearer of God. We believe that God created mankind in his own image. And even in our sinful state, even in this position of being sinners and rebels against this God, we have not lost that image. God's image is the defining characteristic. It's the defining characteristic of all mankind. It's what makes us human. We are not just another animal that creeps along the ground, that, that walks on the face of the earth. We, it sets us apart from the rest of the creation. There's nothing else in the created order that shares this honor, that shares this position, that, was, that this privilege was bestowed upon. We want to talk about privilege in our world today. Brother and sister, you are privileged. Human, you are privileged because you are an image bearer of the God who made light shine when it didn't, of the God who made things exist when it didn't, of the God who put life where life had never been. Quit comparing privilege and just recognize your privilege. You are an image bearer and every person you walk up on is an image bearer of God. That's where our value comes. That's where our dignity is beheld. Not because we have the right color of skin or the right amount of money in the bank or because we live in the right neighborhood or we've got the right number of cars in our garage or the right number of kids or the whatever. You you, you put, you, you fill the blank. But what does this mean? Like this is where we begin to struggle. Like what does it mean to be an image bearer of God. How do we define that? What do we say it is? Theologians have been discussing this since, since the time that we've had the Bible to, to talk about it. And one such theologian, Wayne Grudem, writes this. And if you've never read Wayne Grudem's stuff, I would commend it to you. It's clear, it's pastoral, it's direct, it's, it's solid stuff. He writes, The fact that man is the image of God means that man is like God, and represents God, is like God and represents God. It's like a statue, except that we're a living statue. Oftentimes we strive to identify certain characteristics within us that are God's image, as if in some way we are people and we have these little traits about us that reflect God's image. We need to be careful with that. Another theologian, John Frame, who is another theologian I would commend to you, he writes in his book, Salvation belongs to the Lord, I think the name of it is. He writes, we should not try to identify the image with something in us, maybe intellect, emotions, or will. The Bible does not say that there is an image of God in man. Recognize the nuance. Rather, it says that man is the image of God. We ourselves, all that we are, are the image of God. Everything in us, intellect, emotions, will, even body reflects God in some way. Everything about you, everything about who you are, what you're capable of doing, reflects the image of God. It's, it's, it's not to deny that there aren't certain aspects or certain traits about us that, that we can identify and say this images or reflects God or represents God in some way. Certainly we can call those things out. We will in just a second. But we shouldn't minimize the image of God on us, in us, to some individual trait. You are human. You are an image bearer. Period. End of story. Everything about you is an image of God. It reflects God, represents God in some way. That's why John Calvin 
in his institutes of the Christian religion. This is why he was so dead set on saying that you can't know God if you don't know man, and you can't know man if you don't know God. Because we were created in his image. We were created in such a way that we reflect him, that we represent him, and that by studying and looking at man, we can come to know something about God. And by looking at God, we can come to know something about man. As we look at ourselves, though, I I think we should call out some aspects or some likenesses, some ways, so that we understand how this is revealed. So there's moral likeness. This recently, in fact, I was in a conversation just before the end of our, or just after the end of our equipped class, before I came over here. Just a few weeks ago, or just last week, actually, I think it was, there was the, there was the court case where the female cop had been tried and convicted of a, of a, of a man's death, and uh, he, she shot him in his own apartment. I don't remember the whole story, but seemingly he was in his own apartment. She thought she was in the wrong apartment. I think that's kind of how the story goes. She shoots him and kills him and is convicted to 10 years for that. And there has been a cry for justice because so many people feel like justice was not served. Why do we have a sense of right and wrong? Why do we have a a desire for justice? That's reflective of God. That's that's God's image being revealed in us. There's not a sense of a a desire for justice or a need for equity and equality in in, in the rest of the, the, the created order. You don't see animals holding court and trying to decide whether a person should be convicted or found guilty or innocent. There's no other place that this happens. This is us. Reflecting God's image, bearing his image for the world to see. Not not only this inner sense of right and wrong, this desire for justice, but now we are morally accountable to God. Because as his image and as his representatives, we should be like him in our activity. And when we are not, there's a problem. The spiritual likeness. Did you realize you're not just a physical body? I think we all know that. We would all agree with that. Theologians have argued over whether there's two parts or three parts to man, whether we have a mind, a soul, and a spirit, or whether the soul and the spirit are essentially the same thing, and that there's two parts to man. Where you fall out with that, I don't. I, you, you can study it and figure it out. But we're not just body, we're spirit. We have a spirit. And every one of us, though we have a starting point, will live forever. Every human being... Every person who has been given life, that life will never end. You might live in eternity in judgment and condemnation or in God's presence in heaven, but every person will live forever. We are immortal. You don't have to go find the fountain of youth. You don't have to go find some, I don't know, beauty cream that makes this happen for you. Uh, oil of Olay is not your answer. God made you this way. You will live forever. I don't know where you'll live. I know where I hope you'll live. But you will live forever. Mental likeness. There's a, a likeness in our ability to reason, think, logically. We can improve upon and learn how to increase our knowledge and our skill. You think about it. Think, 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 think about Apple. Like how many people are holding an iPhone in their hands or in their pocket? Probably the predominant one in the room, uh, because I tease people with Android so much. Maybe I'm the one that's caused that. No, I really do. Doesn't matter. But think about where they started. You remember? You remember the first Mac computer? Remember what that looked like? <laughs> it, was, it was so pitiful compared to now. What was the 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 Mac computer? You know that desktop little bubble looking thing that looked so funky. Moves and transitions to the point that, man, they figured out how to put computing power in a phone. It starts off with that. Remember the first iPhone? I was told over and over, oh, you desperate, you need an iPhone. I don't want to stink an iPhone. Why would I need an iPhone? And now I don't know if I could live without it. So here they are on their, I think their 11th iteration. I'm on 10. And look at what we've been able to accomplish. Look at what man's able to do. There's a story about it in Genesis chapter 6, uh, not Genesis chapter 6, I think it's around 11, sorry, where man has decided, oh, we're going to build a tower to God, 
We're going to build a tower to the heavens. We're going to find our own way to the heavens. And then they begin to build a tower. And God says, hey, look at what they're doing. He comes down and in judgment separates us because if he doesn't, he puts languages between us and divides us through language. If he doesn't, he says we could accomplish anything we want. And they didn't need iPhones and iPads and computers. This was before the advancement of technology. Let's think about what we'd be capable of. We are able to think and reason logically in ways that no other creature in, in, in the creation is able to. We are able to look off into the distant future and make plans and think about what could be. We're able to look tomorrow and have an understanding of what weather. We're, we're wrong a lot, but we can understand what weather's going to be like tomorrow because we understand the patterns of how, how, how temperature pressure, high and low pressures move and what's going to happen as a result of temper, temperature differentials and things like that. We have a likeness in mind. We don't know all he knows, but we know and we can learn. We have a relational likeness. Now, I recognize if you've got a dog, you understand that animals can feel and have a sense of relationship. If you've got a cat, you probably never experienced this because they're typically off by themselves. But if you have a dog, you understand, right? Animals have a desire and a sense for relationship. But animals will never have the unique relationship with God that we have been offered. They're never going to be called his children. They're, they're never going to be able to interact with him at the level that we are. They're always going to be dependent as we are, but they'll never be able to appreciate and purposely seek to worship him the way we can. In, in addition to that, there's not a sense of oneness that can exist between animals in the way that God has created us for oneness. The reason I went ahead and read the passage is it, as, 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 as we finished out this at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That, that marriage passage, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become what? One flesh. This doesn't happen in the rest of creation. There's an inability for this unifying, this unity to be, to, to be held between animals that were created by God. This is an image bearer of God gift. Not only that, we see in the New Testament that God isn't just saving a bunch of individuals. He is saving a people and that there is a call for unity and oneness in the church. That's a relational likeness that reflects our Trinitarian God who is one God distinct in three eternal persons. Not the same. Not the same thing. We're not him. We're, we're not eternally uh, one is as he has been one, but we reflect that image. And in fact, I would suggest that in part, the reason it wasn't good for man to be alone in the garden was not because he needed a woman. He needed a woman, but that was because until God had created them both, it's impossible for us to reflect this part of God's image, this relational quality. We could not be in the image of our creator if we were an individual. If Adam was the only person that was ever to walk the face of the earth, not only could he not fulfill the purpose he was given, be fruitful and multiply, he could not be one with those he's in relationship with. Finally, the last one I would suggest is physical likeness. Now, we know God is spirit. He doesn't have a body. Get that. I'm not trying to say that. God doesn't look like me doesn't look like you, but there is a likeness. The things that our bodies can accomplish reflect God's image. God sees. So do you. Most of us, right? God hears. So do we. Most of us. God is able to exercise power. So can we. Everything we do with our bodies, every physical act we can do with our bodies apart from sin can reflect, can represent, can be like what God is and is able to do. There is a representation there. Now, some of these separate us in an absolute sense, like definitely 
nothing else in creation like us. Some of these things just separate us in varying degrees, kind of like relationships and hearing, seeing, exercising power, things like that. But our humanness, this goes back to the point I was trying to, trying to build out, our humanness is defined, is essentially shaped and, and made real because we are God's creation. God's image is the defining characteristic of all of mankind. Every one of us. The second thing I would suggest in this, this, this overarching belief that God created us in his image is that God's image bearers are male and female. God's image bearers are male and female. Now, there's a lot I can say about this. We're going to hold off. So once we finish this series, the, this series will take us through Advent. And after Advent, we're going to pick up and we're going to deal with, with some of the secondary doctrines that we hold where the elders would be in agreement with. And, and one of those is complementarianism. We are complementarian in our perspective. That means male leadership in the house and the church. However, now I don't have time for that today. What I, what I want you to see here as he creates them, he says in 1, 26 and 27, God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. There is an equality. There is a distinction. There are two genders. Not a range or a spectrum of gender. There are two genders. Now, I don't mean to suggest that people that struggle with gender identity are are less than human in some way. That's not what I'm suggesting. They are still image bearers of God. They are still human. Unfortunately, they're struggling with, with the reality that God created us either as male or female. So rather than condemning them and treating these people who struggle with these things as less than, we should be seeking to help them know the God that created them so that they'd find clarity in the gender they were created to have. You see what I'm going for? We're not looking at people when you go to the store and you see the guy that's dressed as a woman and it's not to sit and judge. That's not what we do. These are image bearers of God. And they are sadly confused and they need help and they need to know the creator that created male and female. Second, there's a distinction between these genders. There is clear difference that would play an important role in the rest of the scripture. <laughs> we, we believe that this, comp, that this distinction is complementary, where, where men have certain strengths, women have certain weaknesses. Where men have certain weaknesses, women have certain strengths. And ask my kids, when I was a single parent for a period of time, ask my kids how good a mom I made. Our family motto was, suck it up, sissy. That's what they grew up here. <laughs> Just not that good a mom just didn't work. The thing is, is that it's not our job, it's not our place to seek to erase these or, or forget them, but rather celebrate them and recognize that they are true. They are real. They are God-induced. He created us this way. And actually, that's a good thing. It's something to be celebrated, not erased or ignored or denied or rejected. And finally, equality. This is, it, it, it highlights, as he writes it, it highlights we are different and yet we are equal. There's an essential equality between us. An essential evenness. We are both image bearers. We are created with equal value. We are equally human. Whether male or female. We are like God, and we represent God. We all are able to think. We all are able to relate. We all are able to, to express Him in our physical ways. We all are able to, to image Him in morality. All, all the ways that man can image God, woman can image God. All the ways that woman can image God, man can image God. There are certainly complementary things, complementary things that man can't do and woman can't do. That's why he put us together. So that together we'd be able to image him most fully. And it leads us, I think, directly to our next point. God's image is the source of mankind's purpose and value. God's image is the source of mankind's purpose and value. You see this in 26, in verse 26 of chapter 1 and verse 28. Look at 26. 
Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock. So you see immediately as God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. It's connected immediately with the purpose that man is going to have in creation. Rule, have dominion. And that's not just men, that's mankind. Rule, have dominion. That's the idea. Verse 28. After creating them, male and female, God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Imagine how that had gone for Adam if he was all by himself. It's not going to work. God, God created us in such a way that we could actually fulfill the purpose he had for us. And it's in his image that we find the greatest sense of our, 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 our purpose and our, our value. We need one another. Not only do we need one another, the creation needs us to stand as God's representatives in it, to rule over it, subdue it, serve it, take care of it, tend to it. As things are today, we, we, we tend to value a role. We want to be the top dog. I don't want anybody being over me. And we, we see it. I would see it all over the place in, in, in business. Nobody wants to be the janitor. Everybody wants to be the CEO. The CEO, we pay outrageously well. The janitor, well, not so much. But what happens if the janitor quits showing up at work? Pretty soon nobody wants to go to work. Just imagine if there's, there's three women that consistently are cleaning the church now, both the house and the building. And maybe more than that. There may be some things going on I don't know about. That's okay. <clears throat> Just imagine if they're not here to clean those bathrooms once a week. How long does it take our kids to, to mess up those bathrooms in the basement? About one. About one day. <laughs> Just imagine what it would smell like in here. I'm not trying to be disgusting. I'm just, just trying to prove a point. So we, we, we tend to value position and role rather than being image bearers of God doing the things he called us to do. Your value, your purpose is determined by God's image in you, on you, that you are his image bearer. Instead of, instead of trying to erase these things, instead of trying to, to, to bridge the gap, we should be seeking to celebrate them. But, but, but just another perspective here. All the other animals, just, just look with me if you would. In chapter 1, he, he creates all the other animals in day 6 after their own. Let the earth bring forth living creatures. This is verse 24. Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Scoop back up into day five, whenever he's creating the, the birds and the fish. Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the creatures that every, and every living creature that moves with <coughs> which the waters swarm according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. He didn't create them with any special privilege or purpose. He created them according to their kind, after one another, after in similar fashion to the other. But here we come. Verse 26, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. He creates us male and female. Let them have dominion over all things. God bestowed on men and women alike this dominion. This rulership, this position of privilege in his created order. And at some point, after creating the man and the woman, after, after the, the, the work is done, he blessed them. He says, be fruitful and multiply. This is not the job of one of you. This is the job of both of you. This is our responsibility. This is our blessing. Now, I want to point something out. <laughs> They're not the only ones com commanded to do this. In fact, if you go back into day 5, right around verse 21, uh, no, it's in verse 22, God blessed them. This is speaking of the birds, the, uh, in the, the, the fish in the water and the birds in the air. Verse 22, God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. See, we're not the only ones commanded to be fruitful and multiply. But there's a distinct difference. Because as those birds are being fruitful and multiplying, as those, 
as those fish are being fruitful and multiplying, they are just making more fish and making more birds. Every time we are fruitful and we multiply, we increase the image of God on the earth. Our responsibility was to make sure, to be proactive, to be part of the process in seeing God's image bestowed, cover the earth, ruling, subduing, bringing dominion, representing God and being like God in all of creation. In the Psalms, it tells us that the heavens bring, they pour forth speech, they praise God. We know that this is a general revelation. We know that they didn't specifically reveal God. Maybe the reason that God's specific revelation isn't happening in creation is because we, his image bearers, the ones like him and, and image bearers of him, representatives of him, maybe it's because we no longer represent him. See, God, God created us in his image, and that's where our value, that's where our purpose, that's where it's all rooted. And the reason we're running around looking for purpose in life is because we've lost sight of the fact that we are his image bearers. The reason that we're seeking to def- define value or find value in some thing, some role, some purpose is because we've lost our footing and our sense of value. You are God's image. You are like the God who spoke everything into existence. You are, in a re- you are intended to be a representative of God in this world. Which leads us to a question. Is that still true? I mean, we've already admitted that Adam and Eve, I mean, we're not them, right? We're, we're no longer there. God's image is distorted by our sin, but not destroyed. His image is distorted by our sin, but not destroyed. We've been hinting at it all along. Something has gone wrong. Something is, it's, we aren't what we were. We know as the story continues, Adam and Eve choose to rebel against God. They do the one thing he commanded them not to do. He told them, ah, you got the whole world, you got every tree. And then in chapter 2, we see that he limited them by one. He gave them the abundance of creation. And he says, but this one tree, this one tree, you're not to eat it. They ate it. They fell into sin and they, they were removed by God from the garden. He created them to be his image bearers, to represent him, to be like him. They were tempted by Satan to become more like him. In fact, if you go back and read the record, it says that Eve saw the fruit was good for bringing wisdom. Let me make her like God. Did he make a mistake in making you like him? Unfortunately, Adam never asked that question. He's with her. He eats the fruit alongside her. They believe the lie. They eat the fruit. They're condemned to death, but their death wasn't immediate. And instead, they would have children, and their children would have children. And here we are now. All these years later, still having children. Are we still image bearers? Are our children still image bearers? Yes, they are. I'll demonstrate that just real quickly by an Old Testament passage, a New Testament passage, and by a guy that's smarter than me. Uh, Old Testament passage. Our, our fall into sin, it, it comes after our fall into sin. In fact, it's the flood Noah, Noah has just come out of the ark with his family. They're entering. God is establishing another covenant with man. God still recognizes mankind as his image bearers. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. He still recognizes his image on fallen creatures, on fallen people. New Testament passage. James is writing about the destructive manner in which we can use our tongues. He says in James 3, 9, With it we bless our Lord and Father, speaking of our tongues, speaking the words we use. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Even in a New Testament perspective, all the way through, that's what I'm trying to say. The the scriptures recognize us to be God's image, to be made in his likeness. Now, the the quote by a guy smarter than me, J.I. Packer. In his book, Concise Theology, writes this. The fall diminished God's image, not only in Adam and Eve, but in all their descendants. That is, the whole human race. We retain the image structurally, so we still represent, we still 
still reflect his image, retain the image structurally in the sense that humanity is intact, but not functionally. For we are now sin's slaves and unable to use our powers to mirror God's holiness. We aren't what we were once, what we once were. We aren't Adam and Eve, free from sin. Instead, born by them and born from them, we all now are fallen creatures. Paul describes this, uh, this fallen or sinful state, as in Romans 3.23, as being fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We haven't lost God's image. It isn't the prominent and distinguishing factor it's intended to be, though. The ones who were created to be like God and represent God have tried to be God. They've tried to displace God. They've tried to become more like God. We tried to become more like God than he created us to be. We, we try to live independent from him. So God's image is not altogether destroyed, but it is definitely distorted. Now, rather than seek to be a representative of him, we seek to be a representative of self. Instead of seeking to relate to one another in oneness as God created us, we seek to make sure we get ours. And in fact, when we fight hardest for justice, it's most often because we have been offended in some way. Not suggesting that we don't fight justice for others. I, I get that. I know that there's people who are compassionate and caring here. Don't misunderstand. But think about the time that you fought the hardest. Think about the, the ways that you've really worked hard to, to get justice. In some way, there's a personal attachment to that. If not, I praise God. Because that's not natural to human beings in our fallen state. It's a result of his image being restored in you. Thank God we can praise him because this isn't the end of the story. We believe that God created us in his image and that in his fallen state, or in our fallen state, even in our fallen state, we retain that image. But man, there's a better way to be. There's a better place to land a better hope for us than just retaining some distorted image of what we once were. Thank God that he sent his son. In Christ, God's image will be restored in God's people. He'd always had a plan for this. It's not a, not a, not a oh, I made a mistake, having to come back. This was always plan A. He had a plan to save his people. But salvation isn't just about us getting to go to heaven instead of hell. It's about restoring his image in us. And I think we need to be reminded of this. Romans 8, 29, we see this plan. For those whom he foreknew, from before the foundation of the world, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He's restoring in us. He's bringing us back to this place where his image is preeminent and primary in us. That we might be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, that Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. God the Father sent God the Son so that we could be conformed to his image. Jesus came, on, came, put on flesh, dwelt among us. And Paul writes of him in the book of Colossians that he was the perfect image. It says, Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. And Jesus had said once that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He was in his humanity, the perfect representation, the perfect image, the, the perfect likeness of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's why when Paul says that we're being conformed to his image, I can say to you that in salvation, he isn't just giving us a different destiny. He's giving us a new identity so that you and I have his image, that we are conformed to the image of the Son. And if we are conformed to the image of the Son, we are conformed to the image of our Creator. The image of God being restored in you and in me so that we reflect him, so that we are like him, so that we represent him in his created world. Jesus is perfectly his image in human form. And, and so John tells us that while we aren't what we were, 
at creation. And we're not what we were before we began to be conformed to the image of his son in Christ. We're still not all we will be. John, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are children. We are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared. We aren't what we were. We aren't what we were at our worst. We are God's children now. But we aren't all we will be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Brothers and sisters, this is your hope. This is God's promise to you. A a, a deep and intrinsic part of our struggle is not simply the sins we create or the commit, I'm sorry, the sins that we commit in this world. A deep and intrinsic part of our struggle is that we do not clearly reflect the image of the God in whom, whom by we were created. But God has a plan. He has a purpose. And he set that plan for, forth with Jesus Christ at the center so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers so that there would be many that would take on this image, that this image would be polished out in, that his image would be renewed and restored in. And there is a coming day that all of this fight against God's image in you will end and you will stand in his presence reflecting his glory the way he's always intended. That is your salvation. But this is only true for those of us that have trusted in Jesus. If you're here today and you've never trusted him, you've never come to Christ as your savior, your greatest problem is not in the way you live this life. It's in whom you represent naturally, by your nature. Are you naturally exhibiting God's image? Are you seeking to represent yourself? Are you seeking to be more like God than he intended you to be? Are you seeking to be God yourself? You'll live forever. But it's not going to be pleasant. If you want the hope of salvation, if you want the hope of the image of God being restored, renewed in you, trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.